Good morning, everyone, and uh, especially good morning to those of you who have been away, either out of town or, or ill in some cases. It's really good to see everybody here. Um, I'm almost embarrassed that uh, today we're not in Romans again. I'm really anxious, which I trust you are t- too, to get back to Romans chapter 9. Um, but uh, at the same time, the Bible tells us that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And there are big, big issues going on in our culture that uh, are diametrically opposed to the Word of God. And frankly, the church, I think, in many quarters has lost its voice. And if the church doesn't speak up, about some of these issues, including the, the pro-life issue, then, then who will? And also, if you think about it, we're all in the world, and we're, we're exposed to media in some way, shape, or form, and to some degree, whether it's through the entertainment industry or social media, the internet, the education system, and um, we're constantly hearing the other side, which is the world's side, regarding the issue of uh, abortion, regarding what we saw last week in terms of the LGBTQ movement. And frankly, we just, we need to be reminded from the word of God about what God says about these things. That's not being political per se, it's, it's simply being faithful to the word of God. It's being, it's being salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And as far as I'm concerned, if we, if we just ignore these issues, we're, we're, we're actually in sin because God does tell us to be his witnesses. So again, uh, in one sense, You know, I want to be back in Romans chapter 9, but in another sense, this is exactly what God wants us to be doing and talking about right now. Um, So why now? Well, yesterday was the 49th anniversary of the historic Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, which um, discovered a non-existent right to abortion in the Constitution and uh, instantly made illegal all of the existing uh, state restrictions against abortion and has made abortion practically unfettered in terms of access uh, ever since then. President Ronald Reagan designated January 22nd, which was yesterday, 1984, as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And here's some of what he said in his presidential proclamation. The values and freedoms we cherish as Americans rest on our fundamental commitment to the sanctity of human life. The first of the unalienable rights affirmed by our Declaration of Independence is the right to life itself, a right the Declaration states has been endowed by our creator on all human beings, whether young or weak, 
are young or old, weak or strong, healthy or handicapped. Since 1973, however, more than 15 million unborn children have died in legalized abortions. Remember, that's 1984. He wrote that on the 11th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Uh, today, more than 63 million, 63 million unborn babies have been killed in utero since Roe versus Wade. And Reagan described that as a, a tragedy of stunning dimensions that stands in sad contrast to our belief that each life is sacred. These children, over tenfold, now it's 40-fold, the number of Americans lost in all our nation's wars will never laugh, never sing, never experience the joy of human love, nor will they strive to heal the sick or feed the poor or make peace among nations. Abortion has denied them the first and most basic of human rights, and we are infinitely poorer for their loss. And then he says, we have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in our pilgrimages to a land of freedom. It is fitting then on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade that struck down state anti-abortion laws that we reflect anew on these blessings and on our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. And to that I say amen. And uh, thank God for President Ronald Reagan. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to reflect anew on the sanctity of uh, human life and uh, the way we're going to go about this is we're just going to talk to each other and uh, I'm going to try to make sure your conscience is not only persuaded but, but equipped. Uh, I want you to be convinced that you should care about abortion. You personally should care about abortion. And I'm mainly addressing Christians, why Christians should care about abortion, but we should all, as image bearers of God, care about abortion. So I have six reasons. There's a lot more, but we don't have enough time. So in the time allotted to us, we're going to look at six. And here's the first reason why you should care about abortion. It's because abortion destroys the life of an image bearer of God. Abortion destroys the life of an image bearer of God. In Reagan's uh, presidential proclamation on that first Sanctity of Life uh, day, he appealed to the Declaration of Independence, and I'm glad the Declaration of Independence has the language that it does, but the sanctity of human life doesn't depend on the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't depend on the proclamation of any president. It doesn't even depend on a Supreme Court decision. The sanctity of human life is rooted in creation itself, and it's uh, plainly revealed to us in God's word. And uh, I know we look in Genesis chapter 1 quite a bit, 
Uh, we're going to look in there again. Genesis chapter 1 is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we have this account after uh, creation week, at the end of creation week. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we have God who somehow within the Godhead there is community. And the New Testament makes that even more clear as to why that is because the one true and living God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God lives in community within himself. And he created his image bearers to live in community as well, male and female. And his image bearers, which resemble him in certain ways so that we can connect with him, so that we can know him, love him, be in covenant relationship with him. But we can represent him on his earth. Represent him in terms of having dominion over the works of his hand. Notice verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So all of us, Male and female, and that's all there is. We are all image bearers of God. But then notice verse 28. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, our first parents. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So these original image bearers of God, Adam and Eve, were to multiply. They were to reproduce. And I ask you, when two image bearers of God, male and female, reproduce, what's the result? Another image bearer of God. And that's, that's how the dominion mandate was to spread around the whole world, not through Adam and Eve personally, but through their offspring. And then notice in Genesis chapter 9, here we're skipping over, over a whole lot, of course. We're skipping over the fall. We're skipping over uh, God's judgment upon every air-breathing creature on the earth through Noah's flood, except for Noah and his family. And in Genesis chapter 9, we have uh, God's pronouncement of capital punishment, uh, his prescription of capital punishment. And listen to the wording here. Genesis 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For 
God made man in his own image. For God made man in his own image. That's the moral basis of capital punishment. Folks often assume that there's this contradiction between being pro-life and pro-capital punishment. But the Bible says they actually go hand in hand because murder is the destruction of the image of God in a human being. And the only way that can be addressed morally and justly and righteously is through the death of the murderer himself. That's what God says. And then read on. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So here's the restatement of the original dominion mandate post-fall, post-flood. And I think it's interesting that it's in uh, contrast to this prescription of capital punishment. So the wicked, in other words, those who don't know God, those who aren't in covenant relationship with God, they're basically, they have a tendency to murder. They have a tendency to shed the blood of man. But then he says, and you be fruitful and multiply. Do you see that juxtaposition? And so the outgrowth of that is that once again, what uh, what is born eventually from the womb of mothers is none other than an image bearer of God. But we don't we have more texts than this. In Jeremiah chapter one and verse five, God said to Jeremiah the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That can only be said about an image bearer of God. And God said something similar to the prophet Isaiah. And uh, Job also said something similar. But then we have Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 that Kevin read earlier, where David says to God in praise, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that brings to mind not only the fact that we're image bearers of God, but we're incredible physical designs and creations, even in the womb. As soon as the mother's egg is fertilized, Within 24 hours, it begins to divide rapidly. There's a detectable heartbeat by ultrasound by five to six weeks, but that heartbeat is actually present three to four weeks after conception. Neural activity in the frontal brain area 
has been recorded by electroencephalograms, EEGs, at 45 days. 45 days. There's detectable, uh, some sort of brain activity that can be measured by an electroencephalogram. 12 weeks after conception, an unborn baby is coordinated enough to suck his or her thumb. And a mother can feel the baby move at 18 weeks. It's moving before that. They respond to sound between 22 and 24 weeks. An unborn baby's retinas are developed at 20 weeks and they open their eyes and see light from 22 weeks. And at 24 weeks, at six months of gestation, the survival rate now is between 40 and 70%. And honestly, I think that's one of the facts that has given new uh, fire, new momentum to the pro-life movement because in 1973, it was all about uh, viability. And the assumption was, well, babies aren't viable until, until they're like eight to nine months in gestation. But now there are uh, premature babies who are surviving after only six months of pregnancy. John Piper wrote this. The formation of the life of a person in the womb is the work of God. And it is not merely a mechanical process, but a work on the analogy of weaving or knitting. Thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. The life of the unborn is the knitting of God, and what he is knitting is a human being in his own image unlike any other creature in the universe. The destruction of conceived human life, whether embryonic, fetal, or viable, is an assault on the unique person-forming work of God. And that's absolutely true. So we should, be, we should care about abortion because it destroys the life of an image-bearer of God. Secondly... We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Look in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, in uh, verses 25 through 37, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan which means a lot more than RV enthusiasts helping each other out. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, Jesus is uh, developing the second and great commandment that is like the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, uh, with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind. That's the first com uh, great commandment. The second is, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And then this uh, lawyer who asked Jesus the question that he did asks him a follow-up question in verse 29, who is my neighbor? So it's easy to say, yes, I agree. I should love my neighbor as myself. That's the second great commandment. I'm, I'm all about that. But who does that apply to? So it's a great follow-up question. And so Jesus gives the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, and I'll read through it briefly. So Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, not really by chance, but for the sake of the story, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This religious person who would have said, I believe in the second great commandment. I'm, I'm doing it. But this person surely is not my neighbor. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a despised cultural and religious mongrel in the eyes of the Jews, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. That's the operative word. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And so this lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy, compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We need to view unborn, pre-born children as our neighbors. And, and why is that? Well, they're image bearers of God, just like we are, like we've already seen. They're small image bearers of God. They're, they're uh, premature image bearers of God, but they're image bearers of God nonetheless. And think of it this way. Where did you begin your earthly existence. I mean, try to put out of your mind for the moment the political and social and cultural controversy, but seriously, where did you begin your existence on this planet, in this world? It was in your mother's womb. You were once... A, a, a one-cell being. You were once a pre-born child in your mother's womb. And if you think about it, what, if you think about it, what separates you, you're, you're here, you were not aborted, what separates you and the vast majority, I, I think all, maybe I'm wrong in saying all, 
But at least the vast majority of aborted, pre-born children is simply the will of your mother. Your mother wanted you. And pre-born children who are put to death in their mother's wombs were not wanted. That's what separated you. But in terms of your origin and where you came from, we're, we're neighbors. We are neighbors with pre-born children. And we should have mercy. And we should have compassion. I'll add, since we're here, we should also have compassion and mercy on mothers. Pregnant mothers with, with an unwanted pregnancy. Mothers who have already had an abortion. And here's the thing. So in our mercy and compassion, we, we can't downplay the gravity of the sin of abortion. But we can say a couple of things. We're all in the same boat in some way, shape, or form because we're all sinners. And frankly, I think there's more men in America who have blood on their hands in terms of abortion who either admit it or even realize it. Because um, a lot of us have had sordid pasts before conversion, before Christ, that we're ashamed of. And a, a lot of us have experience with what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Do you know, brother, what happened in every single case of your um, having relations with a woman before that woman was your wife? How do you know if some of your prior escapades in sin didn't result in your preborn offspring being murdered? So that's why we can have mercy and compassion. That's the heart of God, absolutely. But we may have blood on our hands as well in terms of being men. And even if not, there's sins that we've committed that you haven't. But there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. And he saves us on the basis of his grace. He saves sinners. He has compassion, the Bible says, on, on uh, sinners, tax collectors, and harlots, all kinds of sinners. And I do think, I do think that in uh, conservative evangelical circles, when we do take a stand for what the Bible says about the sin of abortion, that sometimes we do come across as unmerciful, lacking compassion, judgmental, like abortion is the unforgivable sin. And um, a woman who's struggling with that, either the choice or the aftermath, wouldn't dare talk to one of us because she's afraid of us condemning her and destroying her. 
And so we should remember the parable of the Good Samaritan when it comes to the issue of abortion. Certainly for the, um, the pre-born children who have suffered the death penalty, but also for mothers. And remember what we read in Scripture, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. God help us to do that. Number three, this is why we should care about abortion, because children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. If you look in Psalm 127, And verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And some translations say blessing. The idea of a heritage is a long-lasting blessing. It's a blessing that reminds you of the blessing later on. Pays dividends, grows accumulates interest. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And I'm sure I'm not telling you something that you don't always already know, that our, our culture increasingly thinks of children as a curse, as a hindrance, as something that's in the way, something that is cramping my style, whatever. And we need to remember what the word of God says. The fruit of the womb is a reward and not a curse. Children are a heritage, a blessing from the Lord. And we should desire to have as many as the Lord will entrust to us if we could handle it. And if the Lord will grant, verses 4 and 5, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. If you have a larger family these days, and the definition of a larger family is shrinking, but you are made to feel ashamed. What? Your wife is expecting again? Haven't you heard of overpopulation? Do you really want to warm the planet more? You're made to feel ashamed. The Bible says the opposite. If your quiver is filled with children as a man, you shall not be put to shame in God's eyes. There's a practical side of this too. And I think that, frankly, the, um, we'll call it the civilized world, 
It's not even the Western world anymore. The industrialized world. We're now falling into a trap of our own making, and I really wonder if we're going to be able to get ourselves out of it. Have you been keeping track of the declining birth rates around the world? Remember China with their one-child policy that they had for decades and their forced abortions? Now, China has rescinded that mandate, and now they're actually encouraging women to have children because China just experienced the lowest birth rate in modern history. And they see the writing on the wall that in a short period of time, pretty soon, their demographic is going to be turned upside down in terms of age, everyone's going to be old and there's going to be just a few young people to work and take care of everybody else and pay all of the taxes. And guess what? That demographic time bomb is set and running in every single industrialized nation, including the United States. On the website 538.com, which is no Christian website, no conservative website, they said the U.S. fertility rate hit a record low in 2020, just as it did in 2019 and 2018. Where do you see 2021? Although the COVID-19 pandemic seems to have accelerated this decline, the drop has been underway for years. The total fertility rate, the average number of children a woman is expected to have over her lifetime, now sits at 1.64 children per woman in the U.S. Not only is this the lowest rate recorded since the government began tracking these stats in the 1930s, close to 100 years, but it's well below the so-called replacement level fertility of about 2.1. You know where 2.1 comes from, right? You have two people, mother, father, in order for those two to be replaced demographically, they need to have two children. But we know that not everything works out as planned, and uh, there's infant mortality and other such things. So technically, the uh, uh, fertility rate just to maintain the status quo is 2.1. We are now at 1.64. Do you know what happens to a population if you maintain a fertility rate over the long term that's lower than the replacement rate? The word extinction comes to mind. But long before extinction, our country and many others are going to experience the terrible effects of society and their economies from this demographic time bomb. Children are a blessing, and we have been brainwashed as a culture into thinking of children as a curse, 
And Christians, louder and clearer than anybody else, need to say no. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Four, this is why you should care about abortion. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Do you know who we are as Christians? We're image of, bearers of uh, God's image by creation, but then there's been the fall, and that image of God has been defaced and polluted and vandalized and obscured by the fall, but it's still there. But Paul says in Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4 and verse 24 that as believers, by virtue of the new birth, by virtue of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the image of God is being renewed in us. That's what we are as believers. And because the image of God is being renewed in us as believers, then we can pursue Christ-likeness. Then we can love what God loves and hate what God hates. And God is not silent about what he hates. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 17 among the seven things that the Lord hates in that passage is included hands that shed innocent blood. And when the Apostle Paul spells out the case for the depravity of fallen mankind in Romans chapter 3, we saw it. Paul includes this description drawn from the Old Testament. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. God hates that. We can't be indifferent to it. We can't ignore it. We can't pretend as if it doesn't exist. We can't say, well, we're going to stick to the gospel and never preach or teach on social or political issues in our church. We don't have that freedom from God. God hates the shedding of innocent blood and so should we. Number five, abortion is a reproach to our nation. In Proverbs 14 and verse 34, we're told righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's really important because the gospel is not a political cause. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Peter says to believers, you are a holy nation. There's no such thing as an Israel light or an Israel plus or an Israel 2.0 politically speaking today. And yet, it's generally true. It's perpetually true 
that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And if everything that we've seen so far from the word of God about abortion is true, and it is, then then abortion is a reproach to our nation, 63 million. Now I'm going to get a little bit more specific. There's two major political parties in our country. You know what they are. The D stands for Democrat. The, The R stands for racist. And I agree. God is not a Democrat or a Republican. And I agree the Republican Party has lots of problems. And I agree there's lots of Republicans who are pro-abortion. But there is one major political party in our country who actually makes it a part of their platform. The Democratic Party platform So here I'm not uh, using caricature. I'm not putting words into anybody's mouth. I'm not baiting and switching. I'm just reading what the Democratic Party wants the world to know about what they stand for. They say, I'm quoting, the Democratic Party strongly and unequivocally supports Roe versus Wade and a woman's right to make decisions regarding her pregnancy, including a safe and legal abortion, regardless of ability to pay. We oppose any and all efforts to weaken or undermine that right. We know that because we watch you, Democratic Party, in action. We've seen you oppose even restrictions on partial birth abortions. My goodness. Now we have this euphemism in our culture called women's health, which is sick. So the right to, turn, to murder an, a preborn baby all the way to nine months, even to the point of the head coming out. That's women's health? You've got to be kidding me. That's insane. That's gross. That's a reproach to our nation. Abortion on the political left, and I know not all Democrats, to be fair, are not on the, um, the political left. It's not a, um, a, like a civil right anymore. It's a sacrament. They talk about it. They lobby for it. They react to it with religious zeal. It's a sacrament. Recently, maybe you saw the video of a bunch of women demonstrating on the steps of the Supreme Court and a bunch of them 
and as part of their demonstration, took abortion pills right there. Is that where we've come to as a nation? We, we think about the ancient religion of Molech and how babies were sacrificed to Molech, and we think, what barbarians? Is, is it not barbaric to celebrate and even partake in an abortion as part of a political protest? Number six. Jesus honored the womb with his conception. Thank you, Josh. Jesus honored the womb with his conception. Think about Jesus Christ coming into the world. We're told by the Apostle John, John 1 and verse 14, that the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt, pitched his tent among us. How did that happen? When did that happen? Well, look in Luke chapter 1. So here's Gabriel speaking to Mary. Verse 31 in Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive, that word conceive is very important there. It literally means sowing of seed. It's an idiom, an idiomatic word that means to conceive, to become pregnant. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God, through whom and for whom all things were created, came into this world not just as a man, not just as a child, not even just as an infant, but as a pre-born child. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't bypass or short-circuit any of that process. The Apostle Paul reflects on that in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, And when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Jesus experienced the whole track. Every single step 
from con conception to birth and then afterwards. And in so doing, in so doing, God, the word of God, who says something by his being, by his actions, the logos, has forever put his stamp of approval, his stamp of honor on the womb. We sing about this every year. O come all ye faithful. God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. And here's the good news. Why did Jesus do that? Back to Galatians chapter 4, I read to you from chapter 5, uh, chapter 4 and verse 4. Ch uh, verse 5 goes on to say, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So the ironic thing is, here's the son of God who abhorred not the virgin's womb who came into this world to redeem those who do, who abhor the womb. That's the good news. We are not here to destroy you or to condemn you. We're here to say, speak the truth in love, but we're here ultimately to point you and every other sinner to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior for sinners. But he's such an awesome sinner that the Bible says about him, the Apostle Paul says this about him, and his ability and willingness to save, that it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And the condition is, because not everyone is saved, repentance, a turning in your heart from sin to God, not making yourself right, not cleaning yourself up, not turning over a new leaf, but in your heart, turning from your allegiance to sin to a new allegiance to God. That's repentance and faith. Simple trust in this Savior who gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, who died on the cross, abandoned and forsaken. But then he was raised again for our justification so that sinners like us could be legally pronounced righteous by God. Come to him, no matter who you are and what kind of sin you're guilty of. Come to Jesus and be saved.